I think what you said was was pre revenue. <laughs> yeah. Right. How about I? I, I How about pre functionality? Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, what I what I also heard was pre functionality. I also heard pre forethought. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Skippy. Boom. I'm, uh, I I know we're short on time today, so we're going to just talk it 1.5 times, and then the listeners won't have to speed us up. <laughs> what are you talking about, Skippy? What are you going to do today? Got something fish bowl? <laughs> So much in this fishbowl. Let me oh, kick off with man. some admin, right? We reached okay. uh, a major uh, milestone in terms of downloads this week, and it's just appropriate to give some shout outs. So first of all, shout out to all the listeners, but a special shout out to Latvia, where we are the, what, like number two investing podcast in no. the entire country? Why be number I, two I when you could be out. number one? What does Jack Welch oh. say, baby? Bring okay. it to number, number one. one. Going out on top. Uh, still love the listeners in Guatemala. The Netherlands is hitting us strong. I mean, Germany and France, pretty good. I'm shocked. My peeps in Ireland are not doing, they're not doing what I asked them to do, which is all right. Um, I don't mind. We even got some Australia in here. I love it. So on that topic, just real quick, we are still available for listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com on Twitter, at Skippy Dougals. Uh, love that stuff. I got a couple more comments this week, uh, but keep those coming. And then um, the only way we really get discovered with the algorithms is uh, with reviews. So hit us with the five-star review. I mean, if you're thinking about Dougals and it's only a four-star review, I guess that's okay. But uh, <laughs> No, you know, with Dougals, they want five and a half stars, baby, but they can't find it. I see. That's what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's fun. Um, and, and shout out to the listeners, especially our Latvian crew. Uh, we need, we need some listener mail from the Latvian team. Yeah, please, please do. <laughs> anyway, what's up with you, Douglas? Oh, I, uh, I don't know what websites you were crawling this week, but I kept coming back to JPM, baby, JP Morgan's website. I spent so much time on JP Morgan's website. It's sad. I mean, this is one of those statements that like none of my other friends, colleagues, acquaintances, that's just uniquely Dougal's. Like no one else gets caught up in the JP Morgan website for the week. No, yeah, people are getting lost in uh, the clickbait of YouTube and I'm getting lost in the clickbait of JP Morgan. I see the word assets and I click. But yeah, no, I spent spent a good amount of time there uh, because Jamie Dimon, the CEO, came out with uh, his letter to shareholders. Right, annual. Yeah, and he thinks we're gonna be printing money uh, figuratively for till twenty twenty three, and everything's gonna be roses, right? Well, I, I was I wasn't even about to dive in, but you, oh, you now, oh, sorry, just like, sorry. yeah, you you now Hansel and Gretel me. I'm following those breadcrumbs. <laughs> the uh, yeah, no, he he thinks the economy is gonna be booming for the next uh, like two three years, um, and he thinks inflation may not be a short term thing, as the Fed has been saying, but could be longer term. That's true. That's not even the stuff I found interesting. I mean, you're bringing up the uninteresting stuff. But All right, uh, well, hit me with, with it already. Do you have anything with uh, additional hotness in the fishbowl before before I get into this? I mean, I, I'll update you on my uh, 
self-coded crypto index, but uh, we can kick that to later in the episode. Oh, Python. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, loving it. Cool. Yeah, so uh, so the two things, as I stated, uh, Jamie Dimon's letter to shareholders and the uh, JP Morgan's quarterly guide to the markets. Um, so I, I want to hit on both of those. But I'm going to I'm going to start and then we can follow whatever threads because there's kind of a potentially a lot in here. But so JP Morgan, right, largest bank in the US, about three trillion in assets in truth manages about 30 trillion dollars in assets. So it's 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 huge. And so people but kind of follow what Mr. Diamond says just in general to get his his take because they control so much money. Uh, and and so I'm going to start off with the letter to shareholders. Uh, so this thing is I would go I would tell you to go and read it. But lately, I've been recommending so many things that people don't want to read that I'm not going to say that because it's 66 pages long. <laughs> um, but he spends the first 10 pages uh, talking about how great JP Morgan is. Basically, it's like all yeah. these charts about how, about the greatness of JP Morgan. One chart is called our fortress balance sheet, which just gives you like it gives you the type of tone <laughs> that he has around. Uh, no, but listen, even that wording, um, y- you know, it. A bubble happens when people get overconfident and think it's super easy to make money. And I don't mean to originally go or initially go like straight to a bubble, but like he's bragging about the balance sheet. The last time I saw that happening in banking is when everything exploded and people were going, oh, no, the way we pack package these uh, mortgage backed securities like they're double A rated, you know, like I don't even like that terminology, but I haven't I didn't dive into the 66 pages. I hear you. He kind of like goes back and forth a little bit about saying like, um, cause you mentioned all roses. He's like, JP Morgan's doing really, really well. Um, there are some risks to JP Morgan. There's competition, which is really like competition's a great thing, but the competition is kind of sucky and it's not our fault. Like he kind of goes back and forth with that kind of stuff. But so this, this 66 page like opus, uh, effectively covers its risk to JP Morgan and how great JP Morgan is. Then some like non JP Morgan stuff, like the purpose of a corporation, how to be a great leader. It's like this stuff that's just like you just felt like writing. Uh, it talks about COVID, how to keep America great. But the the one area that I want to highlight um, and mainly talk about because I found it interesting is he spends about five pages talking about the relatively shrinking role of big banks uh, in our financial system. And I, I thought this was, was it, this is, this is particularly where he says like, so banks are shrinking on a relative basis. Competition's great. And this is good. However, this is really bad. Um, and, but I, but the, the ways in which he talks about this are kind of fascinating. So one is uh, he has this chart that he basically brings up the size of banks from, if you look from 2000 to 2020, and he uses uh, loan size, market capitalization size um, to, to show the change uh, in liquid assets. So U.S. banks market cap, let's give a couple figures, in 2000, 1.2 trillion. In 2020, 2.2 trillion. Yeah. So a little bit less than double during that time. Yeah. What he then compares this to, he compares it to a whole list of stuff, but, I, but a couple things I'll throw it out that he compares it to, which I think is super fascinating, is one total private direct credit. So if you look at credit getting from uh, private sources, from 7.6 trillion in 2000 to 18.4 trillion in 2020, okay. um, the double. size of the the U.S. passive and ETF market 6.9 trillion in 2000, 30.8 trillion in 2020. So 4x, let's call it. Um, but why is he? What's his parallel to banking with passive ETFs? Yeah, so he's he's putting he's putting those plus uh, money markets and hedge funds and private equity uh, 
into this category. I mean, the, the, he he breaks of deposits almost. Yeah, it's he calls it um, shadow banks. Yeah, yeah, it's, okay, right. Which I think is interesting. And hedge fund hedge funds, um, 0.6 trillion in 2008 trillion, right in 2020. He so that's like the shadow banking. And I'll throw in one more thing before I put in some commentary. Then he talks about um, what he calls evolving competitors, which he he lumps into payments companies, fintech companies, and then Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. He breaks that separately. Yeah. So looking at market cap, you can't even say what's really interesting. You can't even in 2000 it just says non-material. Right. Because like Facebook didn't exist. Amazon was four years old at the time. Well, and Apple if they were was around, they, be they didn't have a banking yeah, arm. Yeah, I mean, exactly. like, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But so he says non-material from a market cap perspective. Uh, sorry, from a. Yeah. Um, and then 5.6 in 2020 payments companies N.A. to 1.2 trillion. The, the point basically he's saying they all they all now have payments. And so, yeah, of course, you what do. he. Yeah. So what, what he rides this into which I think is interesting, is not just the payments part, but what happened after the last financial crisis that that uh, Mr. Mr. Diamond led JP Morgan through, Dodd-Frank led? came in. Wait, I'm just throwing shade, go. Well, what is the, is there, is there a different word? I don't know. I'm not the he, hugest he didn't, fan. He didn't, of, he didn't I'm lead. not the hugest fan, but uh, keep going. I got I to gotta bring personal vendettas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know um, we were in the boardroom together a while back. Did not end yeah, well, but it's, it's uh, all right. keep going. Well, anyway, so it was, but so after the the great financial crisis, right? The the GFC after the great financial crisis, um, Dodd Frank came out. There's just more regulation around banks, yeah. um, and what what he's basically saying is, if you're a big bank, so a bank with over ten billion dollars in assets, you now have liquidity coverage ratios. You now have caps on the amount of money that you can make from debits, but these other companies don't. And I, I think that whether or not you believe that that's leading to anything, I think that it's like it's interesting to think about. And can I read you two quotes and then open it Please. up? Please. No, I find this so fascinating. This is uh, super interesting stuff. So keep going. So one thing he was saying that um, prior to the pandemic, <clears throat> banks had thirteen trillion dollars in deposits, but only ten trillion dollars in outstanding loans, right? Yeah. And and that that three trillion he's calling lost lending. And it's directly related to the liquidity coverage ratio, right? The amount of money that banks have to, the big banks have to hold. Uh, the, another thing he said, uh, a bank servicing a checking account that spends $20,000 per year only makes $120 in debit revenue, whereas a small bank or non-bank would make $240. Not checking that exact math, obviously, because it's, it's obviously rounded. But his point is like, we, we can't even compete in certain customer segments, um, whether or not we wanted to. That smaller banks can. And then the creme de la creme, banks are a reliable, less costly, and consistent credit provider throughout good times and bad times, whereas many of the credit providers listed in the chart I was talking about above are not. More important, transactions made by well-controlled, well-supervised, and well-capitalized banks may be less risky to the system than those transactions that are pushed into the shadows. Yes. Uh, Whenever you has... end a, a sentence with into the shadows, I think, <laughs> I think you, you put your cards out there. No, so he's nailed a lot of this, I think. Um, and as he should, he's uh, probably the most renowned and uh, maybe the most successful banking leader in the world. He's certainly up there. Very interesting. Now, I'm going to have to go back and read those five pages. Um, and and Dougal's for a non-banker, you just uh, aced that. That was like very well done. Gosh, he's 
certainly on to something, but it's hard to sympathize with the woe is me stance when you're the largest bank in the US, uh, you know, and basically printing money. But he's on to something. And it, I hadn't really thought about the shadow banking in terms of additional risk because of the less regulation associated there. That's the part that really got to me because I, at the t in the top of my brain, I'd known that like obviously Apple, et cetera, are in payments. And I knew that these organizations existed, but I just hadn't put them in the same realm as a bank. Like I hadn't really thought about that, right? It's like a real bank. Yeah. Um, as opposed to them having this financial arm such they could help their main business. Like I'd only thought about it that way. Not as it being a bank in and, of, in and of itself. Yeah, but like, let's not, I mean, the downfall of GE was effectively the bank, the financial arm that got too big, that got too risky, that eventually, um, yep. it, it eventually drove all the profits in good times. And then it kind of took away uh, significant profits in bad times. So it's not like that's without risk. I, I don't know. I got to think about this more. Um, I'll tell you that banking has challenges, not only with the regulatory stuff he's talking about, but the fintechs that have now been around for more than five years and, and have a decent user base and then capitalized on some of the stuff happening in the pandemic just absolutely are blowing the bank experience away. And yep. I think it's that middle tier that has more concern. I mean, JP Morgan... U.S. Bank, Bank of America, they're not going anywhere. Wells Fargo. Um, but that next tier, I think there will be more consolidation. And I think they're going to just flat out lose customers to the fintechs with uh, people under like 45. We shall see. Cool. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in. It's yeah. good stuff. You should. You read, read, uh, read like the first page just to get a whiff of the uh, the E de Persie. That he I tries mean, to put I, know, a in there. I know his writing style, uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll get, I'll give you a page. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's, before I go into the rest of JP Morgan, uh, let's dive into your, your, your Python stuff so we can give the, the listeners a break. <laughs> well, Hey, uh, Dougals, I know you've, you've founded companies in, in the past. This is old hat to you. And I, I wouldn't say I've founded a company yet, but welcome to the first edition of the business pitch portion of the skipping doogles podcast you ready oh wow okay hit it all right so i've been talking a while about my fascination with crypto even though there's basically no money no real investment there uh i still go on the speculation side um i've been talking about how in the u.s the sec has been really slow to allow etfs and other more traditional vehicles and i've been talking about the desire in a, in a marketplace where you think maybe you have 10 things and, and two or three might go up 10 times and seven might go to zero, how to distribute that holding, right? And so yep. I wrote a little code that effectively allows me to tie into uh, crypto exchange and make regular purchases whether that's like market cap weighted uh, or equal weight, whatever. And it Wait, basic... so, so this is this is an algorithm that'll like buy for you. Yeah. Wow. Yep. You 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 build kind of your own custom index within this account with whatever cryptos you're into. Um, 
Can we take a quick aside? You obviously know about indexing and the advantage, say, in the equity space. Do you know about custom indexing? Very superficially, but the the broad thought, but but spit some lyrics on it. Yeah, I mean, just just for the listeners that might find it curious. So the the trend now is more instead of just telling your client to go buy the S and P five hundred, you might talk to your client and figure out that they'd benefit slightly more from like a value tilt or a momentum tilt or they you know if they're really high net worth maybe you can get some more tax advantages if you'll ho- own the individual stocks rather than the index that holds the stocks so yep. the with the way technology is like it's really easy to basically build your own custom index and the O'Shaughnessy shop um does this i think they just reached two billion in assets and anyway like this is a thing now um even in equities and so the question is uh, why isn't this a thing in crypto? And I'm not, listen, I'm not even claiming that uh, this strategy is anywhere uh, near that sophisticated. Uh, hold, hold on, hold what? on. This is a thing in equities. So like, why isn't it in crypto? Yeah, like, on, If you what, follow like, that thread with <laughs> with many things, that's it. A... I'm here for your entertainment value. Uh, I mean, this is, this is, well, so I haven't even told you, right? Yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. in the sandbox environment, like this is working. And yep. I can I can buy crypto in the denomination I want. Uh, so I'm uh, a, I'm pre-seed, pre-revenue, because it only works on my personal computer right now. And Dougal's, I'm pretty sure that the appropriate valuation is about 20 Bitcoin uh, for this technology that's going to revolutionize the world. Uh, okay, hold on. <laughs> so you said you said two things. I heard three. I so I think what you said was was pre-revenue <laughs> yeah right how about i i i how about pre-functionality I, yes I, exactly <laughs> the, the, but i what i also heard was pre-functionality i also heard pre-forethought <laughs> yes i mean but you're not laughing this is i mean how serious do you think i am i think it's pretty i think cool you're pretty that... serious i mean you brought this on to the number one investing podcast in Latvia. <laughs> so i i think you're pretty serious can you can you actually go uh can you go like a couple layers deeper though? I want to hear like how, how it works in a little more detail. Oh, so it's pretty simple. I mean, basically the user experience, like I haven't built a website yet and I don't even know if I will um, until the the Twitter blows up with potential investors, right? But, <laughs> but I thought this was an interesting, as you know, I think this is an interesting space. I thought this is an interesting technology tying in with the APIs. And so the fact that you can do it is just fascinating. So I will probably throw a few bucks at this again, like way less than 1% of my invested capital, you know, like this is more fun than anything else, just because I think that like building your custom crypto index fund is a interesting challenge at the moment. And I, I told you before, I told you six episodes back when you're going, why do you keep talking about crystal? You're crypto you're a value investor like this is not a value investment i completely agree i still feel like this is u.s equities in 1903 like there's so much uh being built and developed here that's just a fascinating space so and then on top of that it's u.s equities in 1903 with like computers in your hand and apis and fancy code to tie together and automate whatever you want so it's a it's a fascinating challenge now Dougal's, you can use this technology for Robinhood, for Fidelity, for anything. I mean, um, the Plaid APIs can connect you into any bank. This is how all the fintechs build their stuff, basically. 
and I'm just using similar technology to mess around on my side. But yeah, I, I do. I know you're going to talk about valuation. I do think 20 bitcoins is probably, you know, where, where we need to be right now. I just want to <laughs> use some of your words, a false narrative you need to tell yourself to keep yourself <laughs> calm. No, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's a, I think it's cool. You're diving into it. I want to, I want to stay updated on it. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Can I get Buckwild crazy for a second? Please. I, I wasn't even going to bring this up today, but I could not sleep the other night. And so, laugh? I don't even know what that is in relation to, but I, but sure. I could not <laughs> sleep the other night. And so what does one do when they can't sleep? Either look at your phone, throw a, probably read. I probably read. Okay. Both of those things happened. And there was some video watching. Okay. But what did I pick up my phone to read and watch videos about? Man, I don't know. Okay. Like you I watched... had Goodwill hunting on the screen and uh... Okay, so so somehow <laughs> hold on. Somehow you like broke into my mentals partially. Do you know why? Because I watched approximately two and a half hours or read approximately two and a half hours worth of Matt Damon. Ooh. However, it was not Goodwill. I don't even know how you <laughs> how you jumped to Goodwill hunting. <laughs> But it was not it was not actually a movie. It was not any sort of TV show or anything. I read and watched Matt Damon talking about water. And oh, yeah. Yeah. So the reason why this why I'm bringing it up, actually, and why it's been clicking and why I want to dive in deeply is one water is a situation of its own. We talked about Burry before, right? Yeah. Burry has yeah. been invested in water. But in particular, what something that clicked for me, and I'd like for you to think about this, too. And if other if people out there that are listening have thoughts around this. I think that there's a connection between some of the stuff that Matt Damon's trying to do and to make water uh, an investment and what we've been talking about, about microtransactions and using crypto um, to transfer to other places. Yes. I think that yeah. there's a connection in order to do that. And part of, um, part of what I think might be the missing ingredient is simply giving money, I think to people, it's hard both from the receiving end and from the giving end to figure out exactly what the use case I think it's a mm -hmm. being or why you'd ask or why you give. But water, I think, is a thing that's very tangible. People don't have access to and takes a little bit to make a big difference in some places. Like the stuff that I was reading and watching about is how many times like someone will be you have to like walk or travel many, many miles yeah. in order to get your water because you can't afford to tap into the local system. Yeah. And it takes it takes like one down payment to tack into your local system, which then unlocks many, many things, including like uh, the amount of time that you can spend on work, which increases the amount of wages that you can get, which changes your entire family lifestyle. And so I just started thinking on this path. Are there microtransactions via crypto that can be made in order to unlock water sources for people around the world? So two and a half hours from about 1.30 a.m. to 4 a.m. This occupied my brain. I fell asleep and I haven't gone back in more deeply. But I'm going to drop that right quick with you. I love where you're going. So one, it ties together a bunch of conversations we've ha been having with extreme poverty, right? A lot of times, uh, the reason you might live on less than $10 a day is because you have to walk three hours each day to go get fresh water. And so yep. there's a micro lending component potentially, which is just, yeah, you find a way to give that community the outlay to get the water that's closer to them and that completely changes their life and i like i like your idea around giving not only i mentioned give 
crypto.org uh last yeah, or yeah. a couple of weeks ago there's a, another website called givedirectly.org which is worth checking out for the listeners i've been doing some research on that but uh yeah i mean i think that almost is more eloquent right if i um am like Dougals, i want to give you 100 bucks it seems kind of clunky and weird if i'm like me and Dougals and our community want to give this community water like it the price it like we wouldn't i don't really care the price like that is such a tangible life-changing thing that it feels like wow there's some there's something in that and what um what it looked like um senor damon was doing more i'd say like a larger um water investment strategy with like bigger dollars yeah. And it, it it just feel that that might do its thing, right? It seems like that that thing might be working too. But it seems like there's an unlock in the smaller micro, potentially crypto because of how how easily and inexpensively, right? You can transition. I think there's something there. Listeners, please look into it. Give us your thoughts. And I'd love Skippy if you want to dive in. I want to spend a little bit more time there too because I think there's something real. Can I hit one more thing and then uh, we'll yeah. tie up? You dive in your fishbowl. Right. So. Uh, I frequently rant about how everybody studies excellence and claims like there's no luck involved and blah, blah, blah. You just, oh, you just go do what D Jeff Bezos does and you will be the richest man in the world and you'll have the next Amazon. And I just don't think it works that way. I think there's 10,000 people that did what Bezos did and uh, didn't end up with the same results. Um, so there's a apparently a pretty popular book here. Um, in Search of Excellence, the 1982 bestseller by Tom Peters, right? Um, I might check this book out. It made all the rounds in the 80s and was yeah. hot. McKinsey, right? my, my, my McKinsey boys. Yeah, you're McKinsey boys. So uh, this uh, story comes from The Choir's Multiple, which I read last week and was telling you about, right? And uh, what what they started doing, not only did these there be like business workshops around how these 43 companies became like the premier companies in the world. And it was the new management Vogue and everything else. Well, someone smart looked at the stock market performance of those companies for like the next 20, 30 years and went, Oh crap. Like these things took a freaking nosedive, fell off a cliff, mean reverted down. So basically um, that this hypothesis is, uh, they mean reverted away in the profit cycle. They're making more profits than anyone else, which brings more competition. And that competition eventually brings their profits back down. Here's what happens if you would have invested $10,000 in those companies um, in 1974. What? So this is before the book, you're saying? If you'd invested in the yeah, well, that, I. I believe the book studied uh, the 10 years leading up to 1982. So okay. I think that's why this graph starts at 74. Um, uh, so, and this, this actually goes through uh, 2013 because it's a updated analysis, right? So you put $10,000 into these 43 uh, companies that are studied in, in search of excellence. Uh, they're worth about 400 K in 2013. If you just put it into the stock market, that would be about worth about 500 K. And then because this is a value book, someone did a twist and basically came up with some unexcellent companies, which were almost the least profitable companies in the space that had really tough performance. And this is in 1974, that, least profitable? Yeah, in 1974. 
that investment of the so-called unexcellent companies uh, worth 1.5 million. So tripled the S&P and obviously uh, destroyed the excellent companies. I, you got to get, can you give like another level of detail on this? Because what you, what you can't be saying, and if you are, then <laughs> shut, shut down shop here. You can't be saying <laughs> if you go to 1974 and invest in the least profitable companies, you will be three X the overall market over the next. Uh, yeah. So back. hold on. I'll n- next episode. I'll bring back. This is an updated study by uh, Barry Bannister on it's called in search of unexcellence. Um, and it's an endorsement for value style investing. So there's the the real details. I don't have those in front of me right now. Is this, but, uh, was, is this a story in the acquirers multiple or is this a separate yeah. report? Okay. In the acquirers re- multiple. How about this? How about about this? Ding, ding, ding. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the boxing gloves off, right? Because we're gonna get real, real deal Holyfield. I'm gonna read this book this week. Yeah. And next week we'll go toe-to-toe around your non-seance. Come on back. Is that uh, fair? I like it. Yeah. Is that fair? Okay. Cause I can't have you bring in this onto the show without some some defense <laughs> on my end. I no, it's not a so generally, uh, I might come across too strong. Generally value investing and a lot of the argument in that specific book because that's a deep value investing book is simply mean reversion is a powerful force and the point i'm trying to make which i might have you know i might be out over my skis with my num misleading numbers here is you just to put your skis on my friend <laughs> it's simply that mean reversion works and uh i'm buying stuff at the bottom of the cycle Books like In Search of Excellence are claiming that companies at the top of the world, at the top of their profit cycle, are going to do that forever. And that very rarely happens. There's an occasional company that has above average profits for an extended period of time. But most of the time, when you have above average profits or competitors flood your space and you lose market share to some of those competitors and you go back towards average profits that's just what happens that's just like economics I'll, I'll give you some of that but next week let's go let's go real deal holyfield what i think is interesting from a business context around this kind of thing is um is going into clayton christensen and the innovators yeah. dilemma because i i think that's the underlying force whereas if you because if you take um so have you heard of jeff bezos going out on top <laughs> um if you take someone like like bezos and amazon um well one no profits but but I think if you even put profits aside, um, when they were you know when you go back twenty years, it's really about uh, redefining what your space is. I think in a lot of and then challenging yourself and breaking your own um, dimensions down. I think is the way that you can last for a while. Amazon's only been around twenty five years, so I wouldn't even say that that's like a long long period of time. They've only been dominating for the last fifteen. But um, but I think it's like they've redefined who they are. They're not who they were twenty years ago. And so when you get so big that you're trying to protect your space, then that that becomes really dangerous because other people will do it differently, do it better, et cetera. But but of course that happens. I mean, if you are that successful for an extended period of time, you get to the point where you're simply too big. And then you become it's less about innovating and it's more about protecting your legacy market share. And that's a different game, and it, that's a, a nearly impossible game to win. It's almost like if you're playing risk, 
and you decide that you want to like have a land war in Asia. It's a it's a losing battle. You get too big. Go Princess get Bride? Australia. Lock it down. What princess? Are you bringing a Princess Bride quotes? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, is that is that from the Princess Bride? Yeah, that's just how it rolls. I'm pretty sure that's like a Mallrat can... quote, if it's a quote at all. Hartford, anyway. the whale. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Anyway, all right. Let's uh, let's uh, can we fishbowl it for the guide to the markets? Yeah, you're so disgusted with me right now. I love this. Uh, no, you start I'm, off I'm all actually, happy, and now I'm, you're I'm like, not, we have I'm, to talk. I'm, I'm just, I want to read this book because I want to, I want us to, I want to well, come at it. You could just read the the value investing article too. I can, Why read an I article mean, when you could read a book? Yeah, good point. Mm, there you go why read a book when you watch a movie cheekbones so uh so uh so jp morgan comes out with this quarterly guide to the markets which is a whole bunch of charts basically um good stuff i like i usually yeah i I like to look through them because i think there's some things that are interesting this one i think is kind of fascinating not so much in a um like a new insights kind of way i would say but it it, it's like a it captures so much of what we've talked about, uh, what we've talked about even on here over the last few weeks. And so I think it's worth a flip through um, for those that want to take a look, because it's just it's like a great summary of many things that are going on uh, right now, broader than the last quarter, much broader than the last quarter, like looking over the last 30, 40 years, um, to be honest, in some cases. So I'm going to do like a real quick hit, because, again, there's there's nothing necessarily new. Are fully insightful, but I think it captures some elements real. So you good if I just bullet? Yeah, bullet you, down. we should probably throw a couple of these graphs on the Twitter because uh, that way they can have some material as they yeah. listen through. That that sounds good. And uh, and interrupt me, hop in if you if you hear some ignorance. Uh, I'm, I'm going to drop some page numbers too, so people can find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. um, so one is we're doomed for poor returns in the coming years, right? Uh, page six. Another is this big rotation, and it mentions, uh, it compares like uh, some historical returns to the returns over the last year for energy, airlines, um, REITs, hotels, banks on page 15. I think that's like a really interesting and clear way to show that. Uh, page 17 has annual returns. And, oh, oh, this, wait. this uh, Sorry, I got to interrupt. Page six is one of my favorite charts. Uh, it breaks down uh, sources of earnings per share growth. And it's awesome to see like where it comes from and and how it's evolving. So back to page 17. Oh, so yeah, page 17 is what we talked about recently over the past couple of weeks. Uh, annual returns for the S&P 500 and their intra-year drawdowns for that year, yeah. going back to 1980. I think it's, it's so interesting, um, this one. And highlights, I think 1980 itself is like a really interesting year. It had a huge drawdown. Yeah, so um, 1980, um, 26% return. Um, but the drawdown was negative 17%. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So we covered that last couple of years. Um, inequality, it covers on, on pages 24 and 25. What you'll love, because I know you're loading up like Scrooge McDuck or Huey, Dewey, and Louie, Who um, is the on page 57, it looks at international valuation discount relative to the US um, oh, and shows yeah. that right now we're at a PE a price to earnings discount at a little bit over 20 negative 25%, right? For international valuations versus US valuations, which is the lowest in the last 20 years. Around page 66, because there are a few of these pages, it, it goes into the rise of China, talks about well, like, Chinese consumers. Oh, yeah. Hey, hold on. Page 56. Um, 
I frequently say we're talking about this because it's interesting and I don't have real money on the line here. Um, I have real money on the line with international stocks. Um, That's, I told you, it, Huey, Dewey, Louie. Yeah. In my, like, in my 401k where my investment options is, are limited, I have the majority of my holdings in international uh, stocks. So that's a, a real thing for what it's and, worth. And, that, and so page 56, to, uh, to clarify which one you're talking about, this looks at basically the rotation between U.S. equities and international equities and how they've traded off off and on yeah. every roughly five years, except the last 13 years have been dominated by the U.S. And Skippy saying, I'm betting my entire family's future upon that turning around where he's previously said negative momentum is hard to flip. So I don't know how those two things go hand in hand, but I love it. <laughs> First of all, I didn't say my entire family future. I have some diversification. I'm not a total idiot, but uh, the smart money is on that flipping. Uh, so <laughs> thanks, Dougals. Then, oh, so the rise of China. Oh, uh, and then uh, and then one thing that we've hit on before, which I is on page eighty, the average investor uh, relative to other performance over the last twenty years. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit on um, in order of annualized returns by asset class between 1999 and 2019. I'm actually gonna gonna drop some lyrics here. So between that time period, that 20 year time period, number one according to this J.P. Morgan chart is REITs with 11.6% per year, high yield with 7.9% a year, small cap 7.6% a year, uh, emerging markets equity 7% a year, S&P 500 6.1% a year. A 60-40 stock bonds portfolio, 5.6% a year. A 40-60 stock bonds portfolio, 5.4% a year. Um, bonds, 5%. Developed markets equity, 3.8% per year. Homes, 3.4% a year. The average investor, 2.5% a year. I think that's probably based off of the Dalbar study, so you can do what you will with that, Skippy. I'm going um, for it, the footnotes right here to confirm. Uh, inflation, 2.2% a year cash 1.7% a year and commodities 1% a year. So that's 1999 to 2019. I think interesting when you look at that in the highlight portion, looking at where the S&P 500, the market sits an average investor far down that list. It is the Dalbar information. So take it with a grain of salt. But uh, also, I mean, some of that stuff like homes, I mean, read the footnote on homes, the, the home markets are so different. Uh, like, Let's just talk about Detroit home prices the last 20 years versus uh, let's go San Francisco home prices the last 20 years. It, you know, it's tough to just throw that into a category and call yeah, it. Yeah, sure. But, but you can say that. I'm the not trying to be the market. Nitpicky. You can say the same thing with the market, right? Like S&P 500 is so different. Like look at yeah, you know, that's technology fair. stocks versus bank stocks. Whoa, yeah. Dougal's made a good point. Nice work. I like it. <laughs> you're going gonna, you're gonna to throw something Man. at me. How can I? Oh, pen, I need a pandemic-adjusted way to to come <laughs> to over there and set me. you straight. <laughs> um, fishbowl. Yeah. You you got anything? No, I'm done. All right, I'll drop one last thing. Maybe we could spend five minutes. You cool? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about Biden's infrastructure plan last time, right? And we we mentioned. Oh, is this a Biden thing? Because, dude, you know how I talked about my fatigue last time? He did two trillion coronavirus release. Then he did two trillion 
infrastructure and then his real budget came out at 1.5 trillion i'm like dude i'm ready to pass out from these large numbers that you keep like <laughs> just stop saying things and start with trillion like do something that's like uh. anyway that's my mini rant biden fatigue yeah i'm <laughs> so it. over it. it gosh it's been two and a half months <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm just gonna mention the infrastructure bill so calm down right calm down a little bit um so i'm just going to mention it for a second when we were talking about that last week we we dropped like one little line that said that was around how he's going to pay for it to say he wants to increase taxes right yeah um what i what i want to say here is that there's the because we mentioned the tax rate the domestic tax rate i'll call it so rising um yeah. partially from what what trump brought the tax the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 21 percent Part of what Biden was saying was increase the tax rate from 21% to 28% and then increase taxes for people over 400K. So that's what we mentioned last time. What we did not mention, and Yellen uh, started uh, talking about this week, a few days ago, was increasing the corporate tax rate for multinationals on what they're doing overseas. And she's effectively saying, let's create a global minimum tax thoughts i know a lot of smart people business people in europe in europe and i've been on some text chains this week different countries have used lower tax rates as an advantage to uh recruit american multinationals but even non-american multinationals and america has a lot of advantages in this world right we american colonialism american capitalism i mean this has there's flaws but there's a lot of advantages with the current situation we sit in but i think it's a conversation that is worth having um certainly because it would make things significantly more it feels like things would be more on a level playing field and there are some benefits to that yeah so this uh i'm gonna give i'll give a a very brief opinion but um to go into a bit of the mechanics too of how this would work is basically um, what what we're saying, we being the US, are saying or proposing is that there would be a 21% like minimum tax on US corporations. And the way that would happen is if if a different country had a 10% tax rate, that you'd have to pay that difference, right? To pay the yeah. 11% back to us. My very brief opinion, I would say, is that this is a situation where quote unquote leveling the playing field is actually just giving the US an even bigger advantage because we're systematically advantaged otherwise. I mean, it's a and and look, as a as a US citizen, I would be like, yeah, let's do it. As a global citizen, I think it's kind of like it's I think it's going to end up with some shoddy results is what I would say. It's anti-competitive, well, I think so in, in nature. First of all, there's always a loophole. Um so that'll be found. But so like Ireland is a classic example. Um, tax rate, uh, 10%, might be 12 and a half now. Yeah, I, Ireland's I like the entry point to the Europe, basically. Right? For, so, yeah. um, so if this goes through, why doesn't Ireland just raise their tax rate from 10-ish to like 17 and keep more of that money there? Because if Apple's in Ireland and they have to pay 21% minimum, Apple doesn't care if they pay that to the Irish government or the U.S. government, right? Yeah, they just don't want to pay it. So, but 
but so they're stuck paying it and ireland's gonna be like we you already have operations here we're raising our tax rate we're stealing more of that money from the u.s government for the irish government like there's that loophole that i don't know how yellen addresses sorry the hypothetical i thought i thought she was proposing even more than that was like let's get together um a cost multinational lines and try and come up with a minimum tax rate uh, rather than let's steal u.s taxes on top of whatever the other country's tax rate is to get back to that 21 percent. that's an interesting yeah yeah so i i, I conflated a, a couple different things because you're you're right so um what yellen specifically this week said was uh we want to get the g20 together like the top 20 quote unquote top 20 nations right yeah. and create a uh, I'm not going to use the word cartel, but I just did, but create a, um, a global minimum tax rate. Um, what I was linking to the Biden infrastructure yeah, plan is yeah. what he was saying as part of the plan was to do yeah. this. Um, regardless, it's basically in, in both cases, it's how do we create, um, how do we put the U S in a better competitive situation relative to other countries that have lower tax rates such that we can recoup tax dollars. I mean, that's, that's basically what, what, however you do it, the mechanics I of mean, it, that, that's the, what we're Well, after. the first one, though, the first one's a little more interesting. You get the G20 together, and it's, let's assume that uh, other countries follow. If the G20 also says the global minimum tax rate on corporations is 20%, I think I see some merits there. Because, like, this is not, we don't live in a manufacturing-based economy anymore. It's not like when you have operations in the us and mexico and canada it's because you're mining there it, it's a lot of people sitting around with laptops right and so it feels like it's much easier to shift operations artificially in a way to pay lower tax rates in some locale you know in ireland right without really doing a meaningful investment in that space. And that's just people playing a tax game. If there's a global minimum tax, I think some of that could be avoided and you'd actually pay more taxes where your true talent is, which probably has some benefits to the world economy. Maybe. I think that, I think this takes away potentially um, some legs to stand on for countries where I'll just call it a price, right? To keep it simple, can be an advantage for them. And makes it where we're saying, basically, if you just put this in, let's, let's act like the U.S. is a corporation. And we basically yeah, yeah. say, like, we know that price won't be an advantage for us. So therefore, let's make sure that price can't be an advantage for other places. Like, that's well, a... Right? Sorry to we, interrupt. Now, again, as an American, I, I'd like to get better bridges. I'd like to get better roads. I'd like to get better toll booths. I don't think he's trying to... I don't think he's trying to fund toll booths. I don't know why, where that came from. But... Um, <laughs> But you know what I mean? But uh, I just I think from an international like if I take away like the citizenship like part of it and like where I live, I just I think intellectually, academically, it's an interesting exercise um, to kind yeah. of talk through. But I, I mean, no, I'm no. generally a free market guy, so that's probably right. But there's a a lot of interesting dynamics going on here. Yeah, um, there are. Cool, man. All right. Combo. I think uh, hey, my concrete here. guys are here, so I got to go. All right. I got to go play soccer. Perfect. Be my child. <laughs>